from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Of the 17 state Senate races in Missouri happening this election year, five of them are already decided due to a lack of opponent and more still are considered not competitive. The same cannot be said for the race for Missouri's 24th senatorial district, a seat currently held by a Democrat but due to redistricting is likely the one seat Republicans could possibly pick up. Democratic candidate House Representative Tracy McCreary is facing Republican opponent George Haruza, who will be a future guest on the show. But on this episode of Politically Speaking, McCreary speaks on her candidacy to to keep that Senate district blue, what she's hearing from voters, and her thoughts on the upcoming special session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me via Zoom in St. Louis is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Merzenbaum. And our guest today in the room with Jason in St. Louis, she represents the 88th district in the Missouri House, which includes a part of St. Louis County and is running to become the next senator from Missouri's 24th district. Tracy McCreary. Thank you for joining us on the show, Representative. Before we get started, I'd just love it if you reminded our listeners about your district and, you know, where it covers and who you represent. Well, the the 88th State Rep District is in mid-St. Louis County. So it includes Olivet, Ladue, Crevecore, Town & Country. It goes all the way out to what feels like East Chesterfield, if there's such a place. It basically runs the state rep seat that I have been in for nine years runs down Olive and down I-64 from Olivet to Chesterfield. Yeah, and kind of being grandfathered into the fact that you served nine years and not eight, uh, but you are term limited. So why did you decide to run for the 24th district seat? Well, in the state house, I have been very successful. I've been able to get things done, even though there has been a Republican majority the entire time I've been in the state house, Republican supermajorities in both the house and the Senate chambers. I have been able to get things done, work both behind the scenes, but also very publicly and partnering with folks uh, to, you know, make sure that the public schools were taken care of, to work on increasing teacher pay. I'm really proud of the work that I've done in the agriculture uh, realm. I think that that is an important industry, not just to rural Missouri, but also to St. Louis County, the district I hope to represent. Um, I've also been very outspoken in the past in um, support of Medicaid expansion. I worked really hard to get that onto the ballot and uh, and now continue the what feels like the annual battle to make sure that the funding is in place for that. Were, were you surprised by how the court panel drew this district? Not really. Um, you know, this is what happens when... Uh, you know, gerrymandering is allowed to happen. There, uh, the courts received a lot of suggestions for what the district should should look like. You know, it it basically runs the new state senate district, Senate District Twenty Four, which is currently held by Senator Jill Shoup. The lines that will go into effect next year. Uh, that district runs up and down I two seventy, basically in St. Louis County. So it includes places like Maryland Heights, De Pere, Kirkwood. Fenton, um, 
Sunset Hills. Sunset Hills. It does not include your house in Olivet, though. So, but you are allowed to run for this because the old 24th district included it. What are you going to move to one of the cities in the district if you win this race? Well, I've served in within the 24th state Senate district now for close to 20 years. I worked for State Senator Joan Bray, which is where I met you years ago when you were a student. Um, I uh, so I've, I served as a district aide in Senate District 24 for eight years on behalf of Senator Joan Bray. I've lived and worked and, you know, go to the doctor and work out and everything all in the existing 24th district. And of course, as I said at the top of the podcast, I've been a state rep in this uh, within the Senate district now for nine years. So um, so even though the Judicial Redistricting Commission drew my house a block out of the new district. So get this at the end of the my street at the end of my subdivision is a footpath that connects to the new state Senate district. Well, well, I know how that feels, because I'm sure if you've listened to this show. Uh, there used to be a house district that was divided by my street, Bellevue, when I would look across the street, I would be gazing into Ian Mackey's district. But if I'm standing on my lawn, I was in uh, Joe Dahl's district. That is no longer the case. I am now firmly in Sarah Unsicker's district. Wow. wow yeah. you, you're having quite the potpourri of yeah, state reps. Yeah, very much so. But I mean, isn't don't you have to move eventually if you want to re- run for re-election or do you have to move within two or three years or well, something Well, like the Constitution that? clearly allows me several years to find a new house within the state Senate lines. But we've already started to look. We've looked at several houses in Kirkwood. Um, we, you know, are actively looking. So, you know, I, I think the analogy that a lot of your listeners will understand is more than 20 years ago, we were living in St. Louis City. And my husband had this amazing job that he loved out at MasterCard. And it was when, you know, MasterCard had moved way out to O'Fallon. So we moved to St. Louis County, to Olivet 20 years ago, so he could follow his passion and do the job he liked at MasterCard. And that is what I hope to be able to do as well. So I will be finding a new home within the new district so I can follow my passion as well. I'm just imagining you kind of walking your footpath and taking like Zoom interviews from your bench. <laughs> like, I'm in my district, I promise. But Well, I mean, that's, that is where I realize you can really see gerrymandering in real life, quite honestly, because if I had lived at the end of my subdivision, I could have had a Treehouse that hung over into the 24 state Senate do district. You, do you think somebody like told the judge panel to do that specifically and the judge panel just did it without thinking? I don't think that it's that uh, open. I think what happens is the judges get a lot of input from the partisan folks that are putting suggested maps together. So I think that some of the jumping off points included those interesting lines. So I will say, though, if my opponent wants to make a deal, a big deal, and make it a platform of his that I don't live in the state Senate district, I think a really good question would be if if he thinks having two multi-million dollar homes within the footprint of the 24th state Senate district make him twice as, you know, qualified to be a state senator. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear here, like, if this was like a situation where you were like a St. Louis city rep, and you were trying to run for it, that'd be one thing. But like, Stuff like this happens all the time. So if it becomes an issue, it's an issue, but it is reality. Back to you, Sarah. How has the way it's drawn changed your strategy at all? Because it's likely that the 24th district might be the only seat that the two parties target this year. So kind of how does that change the dynamics? How has it changed your strategy? Well, this this race is definitely the only truly competitive state Senate race this cycle. So um, as a reminder, there's 34 state Senate seats half of them. So this year, all the even numbers are open. So there were 17 seats that were open this year. 
Most of them were decided on August 2nd during the primary election. So this is one of those races where it will be decided on November 8th, nine weeks from uh, when we're recording this. Um, but it hasn't really made much of a difference. I've been out in the community, so active in the community, and people in this state Senate district, share they share the same concerns and um, passions that I do. And I think I'll be a really great fit for state senator for the folks that are in this footprint. Moving on to issues, what has been the biggest issue you've seen while campaigning so far? That's a great question. And of course, each family, each voter is unique, which is why I take time at the doors to, you know, I I talk a little bit about myself, but then I'm always um, excited to find out what issues are important to that particular voter. But I will say, um, the responses that are resonating the most and what people are most concerned about is I'm a big supporter of our public schools. I want to make sure that we respect local control for our schools. Some of the finest schools, not just in Missouri, but in the region in our country are within this, this state Senate district. So my support of supporting the schools, the educators, and making sure that local school boards can do what is best for their districts really has resonated I'm a big supporter of common sense gun safety. That's really resonated as well. Um, you know, we, um, you know, sad to say every day there's like, a, seems like there's another tragic shooting in the news. So folks are very, very tuned in to um, Missouri not continuing to loosen its gun laws. And also a big issue that is talked about not just by women, but men as well, is I have a long track record of protecting a woman's right to reproductive health care, including abortion. And that's been on the minds of voters as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because Missouri now has banned abortion in pretty mm -hmm. much every instance except for medical emergencies. And there is a thought that backlash over that could help Democratic candidates like yourself. Are you hearing from people at the doors that they're energized about that issue? I definitely feel like voters are energized. I I know from my gut, but I, also from the data that voters, that people in St. Louis County are pro-choice. These are people that are compassionate, and they also don't think that it's their place to tell another person what they can or cannot do. And, you know, every day I meet people for the first time at their doors and I say to them, you know, we just met two minutes ago. I don't think that I, as an elected official, should be able to put a law into place that tells you and your family what you can and cannot do. And I want the government to stay out of that very, very private decision. And that resonates with folks. There was a really interesting polling result recently that showed that 75% of respondents wanted rape and incest exceptions to the abortion ban. They don't, there is none right now. And 48% uh, would vote for a hypothetical initiative to repeal the abortion ban altogether. But the same poll showed that Eric Schmidt was leading by 11 points and Eric Schmidt signed the trigger law and made it go into effect. And Trudy Bush Valentine is making opposition to it a key part of the campaign. Where's the disconnect there? Because that poll, those two polling results make no sense to me. Well, I think that it just shows that voters are complex human beings, just like all of us. Most people are not one issue voters. And so, you know, people are looking at all kinds of things. But I do think that Trudy Bush Valentine's campaign is doing a great job of differentiating her from Schmidt. And um, I think that as the November 8th election draws near, more and more voters will see that contrast. You also mentioned public schools, which has been 
in the news a lot, probably over the last two years, whether because of pandemic related things, our diversity curriculum, what's kind of the general thing people are saying about their school districts? Because I think that even people that support public schools over the last two years have had some issues with how certain things have gone. So I imagine that they conveyed that to you. So what are they telling you? Well, there is a concern that we are losing teachers and folks that work as support staff in the schools. And because it has been a tough couple of years for those that are working with our kids at all levels. So there is concern there. But I also, you know, when you walk around, you see these cute signs in people's yards that say, you know, welcome to kindergarten or, you know, a future home of a future cougar or whatever. And the these families all up and down I-270 through some of the most amazing school districts are very, very proud of, of their schools. And they want to make sure that politicians in Jefferson City are not trying to pass one-size-fits-all laws that will negatively impact their schools. So there's a lot of pride in their local schools, and they want to be able to often the school board member lives a block or two away from them. They want to be able to pick up the phone and talk to the school board member and have something happen quickly and not have Jefferson City politicians dictating things. Is there anything that the state can do about inflation? The tax cut that we're going to talk about later in the podcast is being pitched as a way to combat inflation. Well, you know, it's a very complex issue. I I have uh, I'm always looking for ways that we can do things in Jefferson City that make things better for folks at home. I'm highly sensitive to low income folks and folks on a fixed income being nickel and dimed out of their homes. So there are things we can do in Jefferson City that help bring costs down, including making sure we're doing things that support the agriculture industry. Um, we'll, you know, the special session has some things in there that could help make uh, costs a little bit lower for Missouri's farmers. And ultimately, those are costs that would not get passed on to our constituents. But also, I believe that we should be doing things so that the investor-owned utilities cannot continue to very easily raise rates on our constituents. They're, you know, one of the reasons when you when you talk about housing prices going up, it's not just the the brick and mortar of the house. It's all of the housing costs, including the cost of your utility bills to keep that house healthy, which is fresh, clean, running water, electricity, gas. Have you found this election has been nationalized? Are people at the doors either having strong opinions about Joe Biden, either for or against him? Kind of what have you been hearing? And do you think that'll affect your election? I really am not hearing much about uh, things going on at the federal level. There seems to be frustration with folks in D.C. not being able to get along, not being able to get things done. I do think the voters appreciate term limits here in the state of Missouri, so there doesn't appear to be frustration there. I will say early on, um, you know, that people were more concerned about fuel prices, but the gasoline prices have come down so, so much, and I haven't heard a peep about that in, in months. Now, before we go to the special session, uh, you kind of alluded to your opponent, George Haruza, who's, a, I think, a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. Why would you be a better state senator than him? Well, I believe that my values and the issues that I have worked on through many, many decades here in the community, both you know as a volunteer and professionally, I just believe that I am the best fit for the district. The support from voters and uh you know, everybody that is paying attention to this state Senate race has been so, so enthusiastic. 
my endorsements, I have some of the most amazing endorsements. And I think that reflects that the community is lifting me up and wanting me to represent them in the state Senate. I have support from teachers, firefighters, police, labor union members. I just really feel uh, supported by the voters. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Our guest today is Democratic Representative Tracy McCreary, who represents the 88th District, which includes parts of St. Louis County. Let's get back into it. I know we we teased it a little at the beginning. I want to talk about this special session. So my first question on that is, you know, how do you see this upcoming special session on income taxes and agricultural tax credits? That's going well. As as you know, I have been a leader within the Agriculture Policy Committee and on the House floor in the Missouri House for for nine years. It's a uh, an industry and a, a calling. Quite honestly, um, I was very disappointed that the governor vetoed a bill that we had worked on uh, for for several years in a bipartisan fashion. So. Um, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would prefer that we would address the agriculture issues separately from this permanent tax cut that the governor's calling for. I'd I'd like to see us um, not get those two very different issues, in my opinion, tangled up. But, you know, I, I am no historian, but I do think it's a little bit um, shocking and kind of a power move on the uh, Republican leadership in the House and Senate to not actually even show up for the start of a veto session. It was supposed to start today, and it's just really highly unusual that there's just no um, you, I mean, it's things always get off to a slow start for special session, but at least people show up and then we get off to a slow start. This is people not even showing up. So, um, you know, I, I'm also um, kind of sitting on the edge of my seat wondering how things are going to go next week because we've got, you know, the Constitution calls us in for the veto session, which is going to be on Wednesday, September 14th. And then we're throwing in the drama of this special session dealing with agriculture and a permanent tax cut. But the the elephant in the room on that is I am not sure what's going to happen over on the Senate side with the conservative caucus. I think that adds a, an interesting element of drama. You've touched on so many things. I guess I'll just start with why do you think there is this delay? And do you think this serves kind of as an omen for the special session? Well, if if I was in the executive branch, I think I would be quite concerned with this delay. Um, I just find it hard to believe that there wasn't a bill that was already drafted and ready to be looked at. That's supposedly the reason why there's a delay, but I don't see how you can travel around the state and be touting something but not have any of the of the policy written down and captured on paper. So um, I, it just seems like an amateur mistake if that's really the um, the reason that we're not getting ready to go. Is is there a scenario where you feel like this doesn't get accomplished, what Parson wants to get done? Yes, I think there's definitely a scenario for that. And, you know, what what's interesting is although folks didn't show up for the special session, that doesn't mean that the clock didn't start ticking. So under our state constitution, a special session can last no more than 60 days, which means the latest this special session could end would be November 5th, which is three days before the November 8th general election. So we are uh, queued up to have a really interesting fall, I think. Have you met or heard from Governor Parson about the special session? If so, what has he said about the topic? I have not. There's been no outreach. 
Now, you said you've been heavily involved in ag issues throughout your legislative tenure. How do you view the situation over the agriculture tax credits? I know you touched on that in your earlier answer, but can you explain like what the problem is from your understanding? Well, my so the we put together an omnibus agriculture policy bill early in session in the House. And those were the things that as House leaders, we thought we could get across the finish line because it contained things that were non-controversial. Um, in fact, that bill flew out of the House with very little opposition. It included agriculture incentives that would benefit meat processing, biodiesel products, urban farming, family farms, a whole plethora of things. Um, in, but in order to get a package like that out of the House, there was one senator, my understanding, I should say, is there was one senator who um, insisted that the credits expire in two years, where um, our governor wanted the some of the credits to expire or to not to to be good for six years and not need to be renewed for six years. So we have the the competition between a two year expiration versus a six year expiration. You mentioned, yeah, the, the wanting it to be at two years in the Senate. So do you think six years is a heavy lift for the House to convince the Senate to extend it to six? I don't think so. I think that there's one or a handful of senators that need to be convinced of that. You know, you don't have to be a, a leader in business to know that sometimes these tax credits, you know, there there needs to be a longer time frame so that um, so that there can be certainty in the market and certainty for these agriculture producers. And I think that's the six years to me just seems to be best practice what we really should be doing. But that being said, I, there were things that absolutely had to pass and I could live with the two-year expiration just in order to get it across the finish line. The thing about being in the minority party in the state of Missouri is you have to be willing to accept things that aren't perfect um, just because it's the right thing to do. Do you, you know, how will the ag credits help small farmers? I don't mean, you know, family farms because a lot of those are corporations held by a family. How will these ag credits help farmers growing specialty crops on land of less than 200 acres or livestock producers that may only have 50 head of cattle? Well, one of the growth markets for agriculture includes being able to expand our meat processing capacity. So that would be a huge win for the state of Missouri. Right now, a lot of our um, meat well, the animals get sent to another state for finishing and processing, and we that's an opportunity for growth for the state of Missouri, and it would benefit all corners of Missouri. It's not just, again, this is not just something that would benefit rural Missouri. We also have worked really hard on getting biodiesel um, expanded here in the state of Missouri. That is something that helps our farmers who are growing the raw materials that go into that fuel, but it's also the right thing to do environmentally. It helps us uh, burn cleaner fuel in our vehicles. So I support it both from a, you know, helping Missouri farmers perspective, but also I'd love to see us burning cleaner fuel because it helps with pollution and uh, helps with air quality along our highways. There's also something in that bill dealing with urban farming, you know, um, right here around where the studio is in St. Louis City, there are plots of land that would benefit from these tax credits where people could actually grow fresh vegetables, fresh fruits, other specialty crops, and it would allow for St. Louisans to have access to things that were grown locally. On the matter of the tax cut, do you think this is a policy where collaboration with Democrats is needed in order to get something past the finish line? Or do you think this is mainly going to be a Republican lift? 
Well, my understanding of what's happening in the Missouri Senate is that uh, the Republican senator leadership is working closely with the Democratic Senate leadership to craft something that everybody can can live with. So I'm hoping the reason that we're not seeing a draft of legislation right now is because uh, um, my Senate leader, Senator J.J. Rizzo, is working closely with the Republican leadership to put something together. So I'm really hopeful uh, that we'll see some kind of compromise. I'm going to try to ask this question without seeing seeming elitist or out of touch. But when I did the math on how much of a tax cut I would get from this and my me and my wife make a little over $100,000 a year, it was like $750. And my view of that was like, that's really not a lot of money. It doesn't pay for one month of daycare. It, it may pay for a couple extra trips to the grocery store. But if that's unimpressive to me, then if you have a lower income where you're only getting $100 out of this or $200 out of this, you're probably even less impressed than I am. Am, am I totally wrong for thinking this? I, I don't think you're wrong. Um, you know, and the the thing about being an elected official is we represent everybody. And so I have to also think about folks that are on limited or fixed incomes as well. So one of the pieces of data that I've just been really percolating on is Missouri families in the bottom quintile of income pay almost 10% of their income in state and local taxes, which is just shocking to think about that, 10%. And then you add in, you know, we were talking about energy burden earlier. There are people that live in our communities, both rural and urban and suburban, that are paying five to 10% of their income on energy needs. So you're starting to very quickly see where people's income is eaten up with utilities and with taxes. So you're right. I don't think, I don't think you're being, um, I, I think you're looking at this in a very realistic way. Um, you know, for wealthy, for Missouri's wealthiest families, the top 1%, they pay just 6.2% of their income towards uh, taxes. So you can really see the disparities there. Um, it we we have to do something that's going to also help working families here in Missouri. So what would you like to see passed as tax relief? Is there an income tax cut or maybe a one-time thing that is different from cutting the income tax from where it is now to 4.8%? Well, until I see the bill, I really don't want to say what I would or would not do, but I do want to make sure that we're... I feel like our budget surplus right now in the state of Missouri it has been propped up because of some of the money that has come in from the federal government. So I want to make sure that whatever we vote on and whatever we put forward is fiscally responsible. And that, you know, that is a tightrope that we walk. But, you know, we could do an entire podcast on what happened in the state of Kansas when they were trying to do something similar to this. So I want to make sure that whatever we do, that it doesn't lead to cuts to state services like what happened in Kansas. You've given us a wonderful transition because the same day Parson announced his framework for the session and the tax cut, the Missouri Budget Project released a statement criticizing the tax cut, saying the recent influx of temporary federal dollars is what caused Missouri to have this much of a surplus. So do you agree with this? And, and, and would a tax cut this size, this size be sustainable? My concern is it would not. I I also, so I've worked in that building long enough now to see that the impact of term limits is there are folks making decisions that are going to be long gone, termed out, even termed out 
or just decide not to run. And there's not really a long-term focus on doing what's best for Missourians' long-term health. It's um, I see us making a lot of decisions that short-term are easy, but long-term can be harmful to the state. A great example of that is, you know, we I talk to people every day who have children that have special needs and they need a caretaker and there's a hundred percent turnover in their caretakers. And it's simply because we're not paying these folks a wage that is respectful of the, of the work that we require them to do. So, you know, we have people that are doing very, very important work in our community, doing it in the schools. Um, we have folks that are working in houses that take care of folks with severe disabilities. And we need to figure out a way as Missourians, as taxpayers in the state, to be able to meet our obligations to folks that are counting on us. Yeah. How do you make sure whatever tax cut does get passed doesn't make it difficult to fund vital services going forward? Well, that's where you have to have a long-term focus. And, you know, that remains my concern. I want to see the the projections for this, not just for the next year or two. We have to be looking at the impact on these things for decades down the road. And don't forget, we we have a tax cut that we passed um, several years ago that has not even been fully implemented yet. There's different benchmarks that happen before the, the tax cuts kick in. So we are dealing, we have many, many balls in the air on this, and we cannot just look at this bill during special session in a vacuum. We have to look at everything that's going on around us. To play devil's advocate, though, I mean, from the Republican side, from philosophically, they may be like, we have so much money in the bank. And given that we're going to be getting billions for infrastructure, we can't just like take that surplus and spend it on transportation or something like that. And there, we just sort of run out of things to spend it as far as one time money goes. Like, what would you say to that? Well, I would say that maybe some of these decision makers need to get out and start talking to real people and real families. Um, There are plenty of things that we should be investing in, including people that are taking care of our seniors, people that are taking care of those with different kinds of disabilities, and we are not meeting our basic obligations. And they, these decision makers need to get out and go talk to people on their doors. Now, now trust me, like nobody's a bigger advocate for increasing money for people kids with disabilities, especially as I am. But if we're talking about money that's in a surplus and that will be gone after a certain amount of time, why would we devote money to hiring people when we may not be able to pay them when that money's gone? I, I hear what you're saying. Well, that's where we've got to figure out a way to make it all work. I I truly believe that Missouri's best days are coming down the road. We're not going to give up. We're going to see, we're going to continue to see growth. There are so many things we could be doing that would grow Missouri's economy. And I wish that leaders in the House and the Senate would focus on some of those things. And that would, the problem would take care of itself. So the last couple of questions are more about the election in general for Democrats. I know you're focusing on your own race, but I think that a lot of what happens in your own, your race depends on a lot of other things. How do you think like the U.S. Senate race between Eric Schmidt and Trudy Bush Valentine will affect Democrats? Like there is a feeling among observers that even if Trudy Bush Valentine get some momentum. It's still an uphill battle and you may not be able to depend on her coattails. You may have to run your own race. What's your thought on that? Well, we are very much in a partnership together. I think Trudy Bush Valentine is doing a great job of getting out and talking to voters and meeting with people. She's been on the, uh, she did a tour of Northern Missouri over Labor Day weekend. I spent some time with her yesterday, downtown St. Louis at the Labor Day parade. 
She just exudes warmth and personality. She's so authentic. And I think the more people that meet her, the more people will be excited about supporting and voting for her. And I do think there's going to be wind at her back and my back as it relates to a woman's right to choose. Do you, do you think um, we talked about the? Uh, let me rephrase that. Are you surprised that your Senate race is the only Senate race that's considered competitive? Because in other years that have been like 14, 18, there's been multiple contests that have been kind of seen as targeted. But this one seems like the 24 seems like the only one this year. Are you surprised by that? Well, you know, that's what happens. Some of these districts are are drawn so that the real contests are going to be either the Democratic primary, the Republican primary. I will say in two years and then four years from now, we'll have several, uh, several competing competitive races. So this, I think, is just an anomaly. So for there is some optimism among House Democrats that they may be able to gain some ground this year. Like I would say the redistricting map, which was actually not done by judges, it was it was actually unanimously agreed upon by the parties, which I trust me, Sarah knows that I'm really into redistricting. I was very surprised by that. As were we all. I think that was one thing I got wrong, as well as I did not think my house in Richmond Heights would be put in mode two. That one genuinely shocked me. But I guess if that gets competitive, I'm going to be getting a lot of mailers from now on. Um, what do you think like the prospects are? for House Democrats, and if they can gain some seats, like what will that actually mean for Democratic prospects to expand their ranks in the lower chamber? Well, the Missouri House Democrats, under the leadership of Representative Crystal Quaid out of Springfield, is doing amazing work this year. Representative Quaid has both short-term and long-term plans for how we can grow our numbers in the Missouri House. I think that it's in the best interest of Missourians for there to be a better balance of Republicans and Democrats in the House. What we'll see is things will be more moderated, and some of the things that make um, Missouri um, the laughingstock of the country on the late-night comedy shows will will decrease. Uh, so. I do think that the Missouri House Democrats will gain a handful of seats this year, and we're on track to win more in another two years. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Representative McCreary, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our coverage at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. Jason, where can people find you on Twitter? Jay Rosenbaum. And Representative McCreary, this is kind of your time to to plug your campaign in. And where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Well, my website is tracymccreary.com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, all under Tracy McCreary. So please check me out. All right. Until next time. So long.